you know, once you kind of move up the ladder and you're in a change agent role, it's not about your stuff anymore. It's about, you know, driving change with what the organization needs, but also in tune with your audience or your, your stakeholders. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do. Because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. What is your team culture like? What is your leadership style? How do you make decisions? These are all questions my client was recently asked. These questions came from different people, their current team, people who they were interviewing, who wanted to work for them, even their mentee. They all wanted to know, what's it like to work for you, to learn from you? And when I started working with this client, they had some generic answers that they could speak to each of these questions, but sometimes they weren't as confident in their answers as they'd like to be. Now they're able to confidently describe with examples, the cultures of their team their leadership style and how they make decisions aligned to what's important to them by describing their values, how they model those values and how they reward and recognize those behaviors. Can you answer those questions for yourself? Let's dig into these together. Join us in the catch crew, a place to grow your career intentionally, to get the skills to intentionally grow your career and your teams through your own leadership. When you join, you get instant access to team building tools, including values first, the course, a video-based course that highlights the most important exercises from my book, values first. You get the tools you need to build the life, career, and team culture that you want. Go to the catchgroup.com slash catch crew. That's the catchgroup.com slash catch crew. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to our guest, Kevin Wild. Kevin has been on a mission to dive deeper into the science and practical application of leadership coachability. He has spent a career helping others grow to be their best, including a 34-year corporate career, including chief learning officer at General Mills, and leading global leadership development at General Electric. He's an executive leadership fellow at the University of Minnesota, teaching executive MBA leadership courses and researching career derailment and leadership coachability. Kevin is also a business advisor in the talent development field, including the Institute for Corporate Productivity and GP Strategies Learning Technology Group. He's received numerous awards, including Chief Learning Officer of the Year 2007, Number One Leadership Excellence Magazine, and Number One Global Learning Elite CLO Magazine. In our discussion, we talked about pivotal moments in Kevin's career that led him to new roles and opportunities. We also talked about the differentiating factor in leadership, 
a superpower of leadership, really. Coachability. Can you guess what the one thing coachable leaders do more often than their peers? I love this conversation so much. Even more so, I love that before our podcast even started recording, Kevin asked me to stay on after the podcast finished to give him feedback on how he did as a podcast guest. I will tell you that this does not happen often, and I loved that Kevin practices what he preaches. We took the time to give each other feedback after our podcast recording ended. I know you are going to learn a ton from this discussion, so let's get started. Well, Kevin, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Looking forward to a good conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would love to just learn more about your career and about you in, in general. Like we're sharing this space for the next little bit. Tell us more about your professional career and uh, your life. Sure, happy to share and uh, you know, feel free to dig in any detail, but I wanna go way back uh, in terms of where I found my, my interest and love in, in learning and teaching and, and leadership development. So uh, I'm going back when I was 14 years old, I was in high school, I went to a weekend uh, kind of a, a retreat thing uh, in the, kind of for a business club. And it was, it was a weekend on leadership. So small group dynamics and uh, you know team exercises and how leadership makes a difference, how teams can perform well and bring the best out of people. And then I sat back and I looked at the facilitator and I said, huh, I wonder if you get paid to do this kind of work. And I've been uh, fortunate in my career to, to find those kinds of jobs, but it really was an, an early um, experience at, wow, I just fascinated this topic. And, and though I've been in many roles over the years and worked with some great companies and organizations, I'm still curious and just fascinated with those topics about how people learn and develop, how leadership makes a difference. And by the way, um, as I tell my graduate students, I just find that everyone can be a leader. Either some of us have the formal role of leader uh, in our life and how to get ready for the next one, but also those informal moments where the formal leader does not show up and somebody's got to kick in. And I just call those those informal moments that, uh, again, it's an opportunity we can all get ready for. So uh, with that, uh, ended up with a graduate degree in leadership development, uh, landed at uh, General Electric, went through their training program. And uh, part of that was I, I got to rotate through different assignments. And as much as my career has been mostly in HR and leadership development, I had a chance to do other things. So I was in marketing, I was in quality. Uh, but one of the highlight jobs I had was I was a frontline supervisor. So I had a chance, if you will, a chance to step into all the theories of leadership in practice uh, by having 30 some technicians, two shifts. We were making, we we're in the first year of uh, GE's MR business. So we were making MR machines for the first time. Uh, and I had the subsystem, and I loved that job. And it just, it was humbling uh, because, you know, what you learn on paper is not the same as really dealing with uh, people and yourself. Uh, and a lot of lessons learned. So that was a highlight job. Uh, then it did a number of other things in HR and in, in that business. Uh, but I had a, a significant moment that I would just pass on to the listeners that might have had it. Um, I was in learning development at the time. I was in charge of leadership development for that division. And one day at a staff meeting, the boss said, hey, there's this guy coming from corporate. He wants to do some work. Somebody's got to take him to lunch. And the rest of the team was like, I don't want to take this guy to lunch. Like, hey, sure, I will. 
So I take this guy to lunch and, and he was from the then the corporate training center, Crotonville, which in its heyday was like the place for training and leadership development worldwide. And uh, Jack Welch was the CEO and he was on fire at the time. Things were great. So anyhow, so I take this guy to lunch and uh, I just share with him, you know, someday my dream is to have your job. What do you think he says next? Oh, I'm getting promoted. I'm leaving my job. I'll let my boss know you're interested. Boom, boom, boom. Three months later, I'm doing his job at the corporate center. All because I was willing to take this guy for lunch. Wow. <laughs> so it was kind of the happenstance. But that then led to probably the, the two of the three highlight jobs where I was a program manager for one of their big uh, executive development programs. Uh, 60 high potentials coming in from all over the world. Uh, a number of weeks of learning how to take to the next level. Great faculty from around the world came in. And then I had a dozen corporate officers that would come into the training center and do the leaders as teachers thing, including the CEO, Jack Welch. Funny story there, Laura. So um, it was a, it was a, Kernville at the time was about an hour north of New York City on a campus and they had a helicopter pad. And so at the time the, the headquarters was in Fairfield, Connecticut. So the really big guys um, and gals would helicopter in. And usually security would drive out, pick them up the helicopter pad, take them in. Well. They were a little afraid of Jack, the CEO, had a tough guy reputation and like, ah, what the heck? So once a month, get this, I would clean out my car. So it was really nice, right? Drive out to the helicopter pad, pick up the CEO, have about three to five minutes alone with him, getting to the classroom building uh, and then watching him for a number of hours, teaching and being part of the students and then taking him back. And that was just great. It, it was a CEO at his best. Uh, it was a chance to, to see how uh, he sees development of talent, uh, what he expects of senior leaders, and again, also having other faculty there. That was a dream job. Uh, did a couple other things there at GE and then got the call to uh, move to the Midwest and work for a cereal company, uh, General Mills. And for me, that would be the head of talent and actually to build a lot of the practices there. And that was a chance to kind of start over. And one of the other lessons I learned was uh, just because you can do something in one place doesn't mean you can easily do it in another place. And so it was both thrilling to take best practices and apply them, but also to realize that, nah, you got to learn and try something new. So that was a 17 year uh, end of my career at, at General Mills, retired there a couple of years ago. Uh, great experience, great talent. And, and part of my recent work on leadership and coachability came from that experience. Um, so that's kind of it. And then since then, it's sort of the, gee, what do you do when you have a lot of spare time? It's like, I love teaching. So I'm a fellow at the University of Minnesota. I teach in two graduate programs uh, and I, I don't do any administration. It's like, I'm done with that. Uh, but I'm really fascinated with how I can help the next generation get ready to be great leaders. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, I love your stories. And I love those moments that you kind of took advantage for proximity and for um, connection with those leaders. Sometimes it feels easier and harder to do that now in like this idea of remote work, hybrid work, all the things we don't have those, you know, we're not all in the office all the time now. Do you feel like that's still something that people can do in their careers? And how do you do that? Yeah, so that notion about taking someone to lunch is probably just your household pet if you're working from home. Uh, and then I also find I had a chance to go back and do some teaching at my old place, General Mills, a couple months ago. And I was shocked. And I drove in the parking lot, hadn't been there in seven years, right? Drove to the parking lot on a Tuesday morning and it was empty. 
it, lo it looked like a Sunday morning at work, like, what is this? And like, oh yeah, everybody's at home. There were teams there, but the teams were in conference rooms. But funny enough, they were all staring at the wall. I'm like, why are you staring at the wall? They're like, oh yeah, that's the video screen for the people that can't be there in the office. So yeah, there's barriers. And whether it's, uh, you know, we don't naturally, you know, bump into each other as much or when we are in the office, it's just very different. So I think one, um, being aware that, yeah, there's a social dimension that we've got to reach out and do. One of the things I learned uh, just jumping ahead in studying highly coachable leaders is they, they uh, nurture a set of trusted advisors and truth tellers. In fact, one of, the, one of the exercises I've got in my class, I'll say, all right, imagine you've got something big and new you've got to do. Never done it before. You got to reach out for help. Write down the names of your three go-to people. And so for, for the listeners, like, okay, who are your three? And then when is the last time you talked to them and how to build the relationships and how to reestablish them? And again, whether it's over uh, Zoom, Teams, uh, or you know, say, hey, we're going to have breakfast. Uh, I think it's, that's part of the agenda. A little more intentional reaching out, again, to both build the if you will, intentional relationships. And then as with my, my story about the lunch, like happenstance, it, it's harder to do when you're just, you know, zooming from one call to another to build in a little more of that human connection. So finding ways to do it, I think is so important. Yeah. I love your idea of intentionality and um, coming back to that as like a must do in terms of like your go-to people or even as a leader, extending your own network to your team and how, um, how important that can be being open to do that coffee zoom. I know like all these leaders are probably exhausted from back-to-back -back meetings, but accepting that coffee chat or time to pick your brain or whatever it is from somebody that doesn't directly report to you, I think is just so important or creating ways to do that because those connection opportunities just aren't there. But but the happenstance that you mentioned, it wasn't exactly happenstance because you opted into some of those things and you saw different ways of points of connection. And so I think that's a really important skill because not everybody would do that, right? Not everybody went to lunch. And while at lunch, not everybody was able to say, hey, I want your job one day. And so I think there's other things that a leader can do too, or an individual as you're growing your career to seek out volunteer for some of those opportunities, or even just look for them. And especially in, in the, the world of uh, remote work, it's potential, there's potential to connect with people all over the place, whether that's jumping in to help in a cross-functional meeting meeting with somebody like you did um, when you really probably don't have a lot of time, but it could be a really great connection to have. And you never know. And back making the time for that. And the, let's face it, these are crazy busy days and yeah. uh, everyone's exhausted. Everyone is, you know, working on fumes. Uh, and so one, finding ways to renew yourself and then making space for that. I just find leadership at the end of the day is about two things, right? Getting stuff done, you know, get important things done. Uh, and relationship building. And the best leaders I know can balance the both and make time for both and, and make time for themselves too. Well, I'd love to hear more about your career and how you got to um, write your book, Coachability. We've had similar kind of paths in terms of working in big corporations. So I built my career at PepsiCo working at high with high potential leaders. And when I think about you know, how lucky I was to like 
help build the careers of such great leaders. Like it's still humbling to be a part of those big academy companies. And you just get to see like from that perspective, from an HR perspective, a talent perspective, you get to see the capability of really great leaders. You get to help make them better. And I just wonder um, if we could talk shop a bit about some of the themes that you've seen and how that then kind of got you to to your your book and, and some of those themes. Happy to get there. Let me just kind of go back to your career at Pepsi. So one of the mistakes I made going from GE to General Mills is during the interview, they told me, oh, we love GE. We want to learn how do you do things. Once I got there, they didn't want to hear too many GE stories. There was oh, a pride yes. of, I want to do it myself. Oh, and yeah. Clearly, they brought me in to you know, help them, you know, grow talent to do things yeah. better than before. And I had a wealth of experience. Uh, but one adjustment I had to make in transition in the new environment is I couldn't keep talking about let's change. Here's what I know the way to do it, the old place. And what I learned to do was find the companies that they admired doing the things that I wanted to promote and get going in the company. And one of them was Pepsi. <laughs> so I'd walk in the room and I'd rather say, hey, here's an idea. I think Pepsi's doing this. And really it was G that was doing it. But I knew yeah. Pepsi and you know, you, know, you and, and uh, Alan Church and a few yeah. other people there just doing terrific work. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, once you kind of move up the ladder and you're in a change agent role, it's not about your stuff anymore. It's about, you know, driving change with what the organization needs, but also in tune with your audience or your, your stakeholders. And when I realized, oh, they really admired Pepsi and a few other places like that, I'm going to go study them and see what we have in common that we can advance. So uh, one, yeah, great place. I also, by the way, uh, learned over time in my 17 years there, in addition to saying, okay, here's what uh, Pepsi is doing, I would also get learning from small organizations, you know, whether it's the stuff going on in Silicon Valley, or in our case, at one point, we're getting to the organic business. And it was a lot of really cool, small, entrepreneur, mission-driven, nimble as heck, scrappy, didn't like the bureaucracy of the big company and, and how do we could um, be part of them and grow from them. So it's also, the, what are the small leaders doing? And one thing I love to do, and again, this was actually a Pepsi thing. I'll give you credit for this. So one thing that was happening at GE at the time was leaders as teachers. And I mentioned that in what I was doing. So I brought that in uh, to General Mills, like, hey, let's, let's have our senior leaders come into the classroom, uh, do more mentoring, and, and by the way, learn themselves. Uh, but I didn't just take the high status, big department people. I, there was one guy that was uh, an organic uh, gene con. Never forget this guy. Great guy. He was the founder of Small Planet Foods. Really cool company out in Washington that he grew from nothing. Um, very different career than the big guys. But he had a lot of value. And I would bring him into the, our classes and our training, too. So I think part of it is widening the lens of experience on, on great talent development, both from the big machines, I'd call them, but also the small nimble that, you know, we should never lose that. Yeah. I, I really liked how you just highlighted, you know, they brought you in for your expertise, right? And then when you get there, if you try and talk about your expertise from that perspective, they don't want to hear it. And I think that's, I think that's common in a lot of organizations, like you're hired for this, but then when you get there, they don't want to hear about the other one. They want to hear about what's going to work there. And so just by like, like you said, shifting that narrative of, oh, well, this competitor's doing it or this small, you know, 
startup is doing it or the industry says we should do it this way, but it might just be exactly what you did at your previous job. That was a thing at PepsiCo too. Like, you know, if you talked about where you were before, like people kind of didn't want to hear it. Like, yeah. yeah, that's why we hired you. But like, no, that can't work here. No way. And yeah. so instead it was that just shift of, Hey, I have this idea <laughs> and that's fine. And, and I think sometimes that's what the culture really needs for different points of view to be heard. But yeah, that, that happens at, I think so many places and for people to figure that out to then kind of bring in their ideas and get their ideas heard is I think an important thing. So I love that you're able to utilize you know, still some of your previous learnings and bring that knowledge in. At the, at the same time, I think some of these organizations need to realize that lots of people work lots of places. Well, <laughs> and so we do hire you for your for your intellect, for your thought leadership, but also your prior experience. And that should count. And so there's, there's probably room, right? Probably more room in oh, yeah. cultures for that give and take of hearing from past experiences too. The one thing I'd like to just add to the story is, by the way, because you mentioned we need to figure it out. I didn't figure that out, that I, I had uh, early on built some relationships with internal yeah. mentors. Uh, and I remember back to when, when I was doing a global leadership training work, you know, you'd, you'd go to parts of Asia and like I'd always find a culture interpreter from mm -hmm. both the, the real culture, but also the business um, that's just like, help me out here. What's going on? How am I doing? We go to dinner at night. OK, what? how did I screw up? You know what I need to watch out for? Uh, back to, you know, being coachable and humble in that. Uh, and I think, you know, even, you know, in, in, in whatever region and country you're in, that moving into a new place, uh, having a, a trusted advisor or a culture mentor early on is so important. And so I reached out, I built one or two. One of the guys, um, that gentleman was had a compensation. He liked running. I liked running. We'd go running on Friday nights. And at one point he said, you know, you got to cut out the GE stuff. Everybody's sick and tired <laughs> okay. of hearing it. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Which let me segue now. So the, the current book that I've got out on leadership, uh, the, the coachability, the leadership superpower, um, I talk about blind spots. And I had that blind spot about I need to talk in their language, not my language. Um, but until I had that person pointed out to me, I was completely uh, amiss. Uh, one of the things I did, Lauren, I know that big companies like Pepsi and other places do this. I'd meet with a CEO and team once a year. We would do a talent review. We would look at the top 500 leaders, all officers, all directors worldwide. They were doing great. Who's ready for promotion, all that. But I started noticing year after year, a couple names on the high potential list were missing. Whatever happened to so-and-so? Like, oh, yeah, it didn't work out. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> And uh, I started doing just a very informal study, what I call the derailment study. Mm. Uh, and well, by the way, it clear, a lot of great leaders, uh, whatnot, but there were these exceptions. And as I would, I would do a postmortem after the leader had left and what went wrong. And, you know, they were, these are great people. And, and, you know, what can we do to avoid it? Interviewed, uh, looked in their personnel file as well. And I found one thing fascinating. They would all have a leadership survey of record, 360 survey, how other people rated them on leadership behaviors. The Dorail leaders scored 30% lower in one question consistently almost to the point where it would predict bad stuff is about to happen. You know what that question was? Ooh, I hope it has something to do with feedback, but it, it does. may not it, That's it. Hey, you got okay. it. Yeah, really. That's why you're the host. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it was, does this leader seek and respond to feedback? 
30% lower on that question. Does this leader seek a respond to feedback? So at some point they lost what I'll now call coachability mm. and they were blindsided with, you know, the troubles ahead. Um, and that I, I dug deeper into derailment and why people lose it. And, and I went to the firm that had done our survey work, Sanger Folkman, uh, one of the big leadership development companies. They had a huge database, 50,000 leaders, a million survey data points. And I said, let's create a coachability index, that feedback question. Let's not just look at derail leaders. Let's look at all readers and leaders and see what we can learn. And one thing fascinating was the slope of decline as one advances in a career. Mm. Frontline supervisors, 71% positive on the question, does this leader seek and respond to feedback? No, we're all there. Right? I'm young, I'm growing, I got a new job. People are welcoming me, giving me feedback. I want to learn all that. And then as we get promoted and we get confident, sometimes we don't keep that confident learning edge and the study showed that by the time we looked at senior leaders, they were well under 50%. And this isn't the real leaders, this is all leaders. Yeah. So I think that the world conspires against us. Uh, I think we're treated differently as we get ahead. Sometimes we get a little overconfident. But I did find highly coachable leaders that exceeded that norm at all levels. So I, I found CEOs, highly coachable, senior leaders, all levels, gender, et cetera. And um, those are the ones I studied which then became the book on you know, what's important on, on coachability and how, uh, how you need to maintain it. My award-winning book, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want, is now available in audiobook. Since the book released just last year, the biggest question that I've gotten from readers is, is it available in audiobook? In this book, you'll get to hear my most pivotal career stories and some of the successes of my clients as you learn about the values first framework and how you can take action on your life and career. The audiobook is narrated by me. So if you love this podcast, you'll love the audiobook. Values first, how knowing your core beliefs can get you the life and career you want is now available on Audible and iTunes. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I was in a coaching session last week with a leader and I asked the question, how do you seek and receive feedback? And he said, you know, I am, I have an open door policy. My team totally knows that they can come to me whenever they want. It's part of my process of continuous improvement. And then I, I asked again, I was like, how do you, how do you seek and receive feedback? Um, do you actively seek it? It was what I was because I think there's a difference between having an open door policy and then having behaviors that um, actually bring you in feedback from different points of view. And so we we talked about different ways that he could do that in terms of does he get it from his manager? Does he get it from, you know, you know, from his direct reports in a way that's not just, hey, they can bring it to me whenever they want to bring it to me but I'm actually actively seeking it. And then what does he do once he gets it? And so I think it's a, it's a really interesting question because I think we all think we're open to feedback and we're all, we know it's important, right? And I just, going back to that intentionality, are we super intentional about it? Maybe not when you actually think through it. So I'd love to hear like some of the things that you found in, in that data, did people who rated themselves even lower, did they, 
Did their teams also rate them as low? And the highly coachable were were kind of both of those, you know, all raters kind of high. Were there any discrepancies between raters? Did some people think they were doing it, but they really weren't? And then what are real leaders doing to get feedback? Yeah, the, the whole self-rating against others is back to the do you have blind spots? And yeah. what I found is the highly coachable leaders had less. Yeah. Now, let's face it, we all have things we you know we don't look at or we don't know about, but they had less uh, and they were more aligned with how they saw themselves and how others. That's one of the reasons I, one of the courses I teach is leadership for the executive MBA program at the University of Minnesota. And um, I inundate them with surveys and assessments and, you know, it's to really get back in touch with self-awareness and then also, hey, don't fool yourself. Um, now, I will say, and this is, uh, so the, 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 the story goes, found derailment, so found the feedback question. I then said, gee, I wonder what the best do. I went out and I interviewed 50 executive coaches, people like you. It's like, hey, mm -hmm. when you have someone who's highly coachable, what do they do? How, are, how do they handle themselves, et cetera? What do you do when it doesn't show up? Did a big literature review, had, had a, a professor, we partnered with that. And I did some of my own original research and essentially came up with a very simple model. And what we found at all levels, highly coachable leaders, first of all, hold the mindset. And the mindset is clearly the, the growth mindset, um, that interest in, I, I wanna get better. I'm not a finished product leader you interviewed might have had that as a mindset, uh, but then do you have practices? Do you have habits? Do you have routines? Uh, because I'd say, yeah, you can open door, but nobody's going to walk into that door. Let, let's face it. A boss has power. Uh, yeah. You want to tell the boss good news. Let someone else tell uh, her or him bad, you know, good, bad news and all that. So, you know, they start, you start getting isolated. So what I found is highly coachable leaders do four things. Uh, the first one is they do seek feedback, right? Oftentimes, it's what I call mission driven. What do you want to get better at? What do you want to learn about? Uh, oftentimes, I'll do an exercise like, okay, write on a piece of paper in the next 90 days, what would you like to learn about? And then who would you go to to get that input and advice? And again, it could be the boss, could be peers, could be a neighbor. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, truth teller. But then also, how would you get the conversation started? And then pick one or two and get into the practice because I think uh, two things about feedback. Number one, we lose the habit over time. We get busy. Uh, and the other thing is, yeah, this is my point of view. You might have a different one. Feedback hurts. It's, it, you know, as much as like, oh, it's a gift. Like, yeah, it's a gift, but it comes in an ugly package. And yeah. so you have to train yourself to, you know, get, go back to what am I trying to learn here? I'm willing to be vulnerable. Uh, I have the confidence to ask, but I've got, I've got a habit and routine in how to process it. I always tell people like, when you get constructive feedback or something, a tough message, you're gonna be grumpy. You're gonna be defensive. It's like, yep. That's me. But then quickly get over it and say, I need to understand and kind of mull this over a little bit. And then that's the second thing is the highly coachable leaders both systematically pick areas they want to learn, go out to the truth tellers, other people check in for feedback. They seek it. But then secondly, they respond well when it shows up. Yeah. And I learned the best thing from a friend of mine who's an actor in New York City, professional. We were talking about this whole concept of how to stay coachable and humble and you know take feedback when it's hard. And he said, oh, that's like when you train as a professional actor taking a note. And you have heard mm -hmm. that, taking a note. Uh, a lot of performance professions have this. And he was explaining that, look, at the end of a rehearsal, you stay on stage, the director will give each actor a note. And he said, you know, I used to enjoy getting notes because it helped me improve my performance because I don't see how my lines are coming across. I don't see the body language on the stage or the performance. I, I want my character to be better. How, how can I build it? That's that mindset. But again, the response is like, I'm taking a note. And so I, I encourage people, I do myself, to have a trigger phrase 
to be open when someone gives you that nasty feedback, right? Or, or any kind of feedback. Like, oh, I'm just taking a note. Or, you know, candidly around the house, um, when I get feedback here, the, uh, the trigger I use is, here comes my note of the day. <laughs> here comes my tip of the day. Okay. And that just puts me more in a listening mode as opposed to a defensive mode. Uh, so highly coachable leaders, they find ways to seek it, truth tellers, asking, et cetera. They respond well, and then they think enough about it. And whether that's journaling, talking to a friend, or just kind of putting the dots together, here's what I've heard. Uh, I don't think you have to follow all the advice and feedback you receive. I think it's valuable to get it, because then you know. But then you got to sort it out. You know, is this important to me? Have I heard this before? Is this something that might not have been important before, but it's important now? Um, and then the final thing a, a highly coachable leader does is when it's important, they'll, they'll step into it. They'll take action. They'll try a different behavior. And so that, that's a simple model. Mindset, I'm, I'm an unfinished product. I'm curious, I want to keep learning. I've got what I'll call a learning zone. Um, and then they've got those practices. How often do I seek it? Do I respond well when it shows up? By the way, that's a great coaching question too. How do you see me responding to feedback? Mm, yeah. right? Learn from it. And then you know, reflecting enough on it and then taking action. So that, that's kind of a, what I've seen highly coachable leaders do. I really like that question. I also like this idea of um, a couple of things that you just said, like finding those truth tellers, right? And and building those, go, it goes back to that relationship building, right? That's so important in leadership in general. But to have, like you said, you can have, you can say you have an open door policy, but no, I mean, nobody's going to come or they still might be scared to bring it to you. But if yeah. you have those trusted um, relationships that you can ask for feedback from the people that will actually tell you the truth and those trusted relationships. And then the idea of even if they give you the note, is it something that you need to do something about? Sometimes it is absolutely. And other times it, it may be no, or maybe not now. And so every, I bet every note an actor gets, they're not going to respond to every single one of them and they get to decide and kind of filter through that. So that intentional thinking through it is important. But at the same time, you're not always going to get the feedback from a trusted person, right? Sometimes it's, it's somebody you barely know, or somebody you're trying to build a relationship with, or somebody might have just had a bad day and you get to be at the other end of it, but you get to kind of figure that out on your own. So I kind of like this, the cross between like, how do you get the feedback from the people you trust? But then how do you kind of sort through all the feedback that you are getting to figure out what to act on? Yeah. And to your point, sometimes um, the trusted advisor is your sounding board as you're responding to, hey, I heard this feedback, you know, should I ignore it? Or I'm trying to decide how important it is right now. Uh, I love the question. You know, I got this feedback. I don't know what to do before I dismiss it. Is there anything here I should pay attention to? And that's again, trusted advisor, friend, uh, spouse, and you know, a partner can help you with that one. I got a friend that's, that reminds me in terms of where you get feedback from. Uh, he used to run a con owner of a comedy club in Minneapolis. And we were talking about this concept of coachability and all of that. And uh, John Sweeney is his name. And John would say, you know, I take all the feedback to heart from my team. We've been through a lot together, you know, COVID and whatnot. He said, you know, I trust them. Anything they say, I'm going to act on. And then he said, but what really kind of irks me is when the temp employee ticket taker tells me how to run the theater. He said, ah, I just don't. And I said, you know, absolutely. I understand that in terms of some people have more credibility than others, but there's a couple things to consider about that ticket taker. Number one, sometimes 
how you act uh, is a shadow that casts itself throughout your culture. So in other words, how you, if you dismiss that uh, ticket taker feedback outright, that might impact the culture. So when you're role modeling being coachable, again, you don't have to follow the advice, but be courteous, listen to it. The second thing is sometimes the fresh pair of eyes can see the truth that the people closest to you can't. So as much as I do like truth tellers, sometimes it's that random thing like, oh, maybe. So by the way, I do, and I'm happy to share uh, if you've got a link. Uh, I've got a blog on the six ways to find a truth teller. One of them, as I study people that do this well, is aim for diversity. Oftentimes, the people closest to us are like us. And I think that's great and that's important uh, for a lot of ways. But finding people who are different from us to build those kinds of relationships can give, if you will, that ticket taker perspective. Yeah, I love that idea. And so before you had mentioned, hey, think through and be intentional about who are your go-to people, but also those go-to people, are they all the same? Are they the same kind of people? Like for me, I'm an introvert at heart. Um, you know, some of my longest relationships are people I've known forever, know me really well. Are they all the same? And so I, I like to look at it as a lens of who do I go to? And then also who comes to me? And mm -hmm. then is there diversity of thought and of opinion and of, uh, of even background, right? Yeah. So when I think about who do I go to, it's usually somebody who has, you know, the same, they're an HR background. I've known them for a long time, have deep relationships. Um, there are probably men and women. Um, some are later in career than me. Some are similar. People who come to me are mostly, um, and this is part of what I love to do, but like they're potentially younger, more women. And so who am I serving as a leader and giving advice and feedback? And then who am I seeking advice and feedback from? And how do I widen that circle um, to your point? Because mm -hmm. if they're all the same, they're just going to tell me what I want to hear. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it, uh, the other thing is, I think you should always have in your back pocket uh, a couple seek questions mm -hmm. that, again, either with a trust advisor or someone brand new. Um, and my two favorite, which Laura, we're going to talk about later, is, uh, you know, at the kind of a little after action review it could be end of a project end of a meeting, or in this case, it could be end of the podcast. I'm going to say, all right, tell me two things. Number one, and I'm working on getting better as a guest. What's something I did well in this podcast? I should do the next one. And what's something I do differently? That would be even better next time. And those kind of pocket questions you can kind of pull out in any sort of meeting or connection or relationship. And I think it'd be light. But it both gives uh, the sender, if you will, a chance to affirm something that sometimes you miss, but okay, that's great. And then also a chance to say, oh, here's something that'd be a little different, but gently giving that to you. And uh, the punchline there is that, you know, if you're just starting out and you do want to seek more coaching and feedback and more trust advisors, it might take a while to really get that flow of information and support. So having habits of asking certain questions is one way to do it. Yeah, I love that. And just so the listeners know, right before we always start um, recording a podcast, we I always do just like a check-in. We walk through kind of how our time is going to be set out. And um, this is the first time anybody, a guest has ever done that is Kevin said, hey, after I'd love to get some feedback from you. Mm -hmm. And I love that because it's intentional 
Um, you're practicing what you preach in terms of coachability, yeah. right? Yeah. And then it gives me something to think about as we are in connection together right now. And um, in, in addition, it lets in, it, it creates a space for me to receive feedback also, because it's very reciprocal. It feels like if somebody is asking for feedback, right, it then sets the stage for you to give feedback to them later. So I think it's feedback is just so powerful. I agree with you. Feedback can absolutely hurt and it's a tough thing, but it's also a source of connection too. Yeah, it is relationship. I, by the way, and I struggled in writing that, you know, uh, feedback is what's commonly understood as what we're talking about here, but I don't like that word. I think it just kind of gets the, the hairs up in the back of my neck. And so I, when I ask, I say, hey, you have any observations for me? Mm. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Do you have any advice? Did you see anything? Uh, yeah. Do you have a note for me? Um, and so I, I tend to, because even on the sending end, that, that feedback word just has a lot of uh, baggage. By the way, the, the two question technique, as I called it, you know, did well, do again, do differently. Uh, I had a meeting once where it went sideways. It was really interesting, I want to share. So uh, I was speaking at a big conference, uh, which is really fun. The night before I was uh, at the speaker's dinner table and they had the organizers there and whatnot. And uh, after it was all over, after my uh, speech, um, uh, a couple days later, I just reached out to one of the other speakers who happened to be during my presentation, and I did the two questions. Hey, tell, you know, I'm trying to get better. I'm working on my presentation style and impact with the audience. Could you coach me a little bit? Something I did well, something differently. And uh, Kathleen, her name, did a wonderful thing. She said, I don't want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about the speaker dinner. Like, okay. And she said, do you know you spent all your time talking to the organizers and you really ignored the rest of us? I said, wow, my apologies. That was not my intent. Uh, and I, you know, thank you for telling me that. I mean, I, I really value everyone and I need to, you know, I ever since then, when I'm at some sort of formal dinner, you know, I'm always making sure that I'm connecting with lots of different people. Uh, complete blind spot. But again, the habit of asking that question gave me some sideways learning I didn't expect. Uh, and, and Kathleen was uh, courageous enough to, to offer that. The other thing, if I could just offer back to the, the study on, on what makes this so powerful is uh, we had looked at, again, this is the Zinger Folkman company. They had uh, a study of 300 leaders where they had the, the ratings of how coachable this person was, high to low, but they also had their personality assessment of confidence, low mm -hmm. confidence to high confidence. And what was surprising was there was no linear relationship between confidence and coachability. It was a curve. So in other words, if you picture a chart, low confidence, low coachability, not good. And I call that, and I'm there some time to time, I call it the I can't zone, right? I, I'm feeling too vulnerable. It's not a safe space. I'm tired. I, I'm threatened. I, I just don't want feedback. No confidence. Then on the opposite end of the scale was too much confidence. Let's call it hubris or you know whatnot. And again, we, don't, we get busy. I call it the I don't, I don't care zone, right? I'm busy. Who are you to tell me that? Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The sweet spot was the middle. Hmm. Enough confidence to be vulnerable, to ask, to be curious, to get better, but not too much that you still had the humility about, you know what, I can learn, I can get better. And so oftentimes in my workshops, I'll ask, hey, you know, how much time do you spend in your learning zone with enough, enough confidence to be interested in getting better, uh, but not so busy or overconfident that you're not taking the time to ask. I did, I did a group once where they said, you know, on average for the past month, I spent about 25% of my time leading in my learning zone. 
I said, okay, that's honest. Now, is that good enough? And I think that's something all of us could think about is, okay, how much am I really operating in my learning zone? And I think for many of us, it's less about um, humility and it's more about building the confidence to put yourself in a coachable spot. It's really interesting. I really love your kind of definition through that explanation of confidence, because I think people might think about confidence in a different way. Like I coach a lot of women executives and, you know, imposter syndrome, like all the things, even myself, if you ask me on a given day, how confident are you? It would probably completely vary depending on what I'm doing. Um, and in some situations it might be super low, but if you asked me, um, do I want to get better? And am I interested in learning? Absolutely. Like a hundred percent, almost, almost all the time. Do I know? I don't know everything. Absolutely not. But even that like mindset shift of what is confidence and how do we define it? I think, um, that's a very important mindset shift because again, I, it could vary any day. Um, mm-hmm. but I think sometimes, um, women, marginalized individuals might experience less confidence in different rooms. If we don't see people like us, if it's a new situation, um, if we don't have the sponsors, like all of the things, but just that kind of shift of, am I wanting to learn something new? Yes, absolutely. I really yeah. like that. Yeah, and, and back to the, you know, I think confidence and coachability goes together. Uh, fascinating, we, we did a, a session once in the, in the Exec MBA course on imposter syndrome, and they did a survey in the class, I had about 50 uh, grad students. These are all high potential, you know, mostly major corporation, really confident, uh, successful people. And the question was, have you ever experienced the imposter syndrome? 93% said yes. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. And as much as I've done the work I've done on imposter syndrome and confidence, like, okay, one, first thing you have to do is realize everybody has it. Mm-hmm. Some are faking it better than others. Yes. Uh, but don't feel that, you know, you're being called out or it's, you know, it's very obvious, but like, okay, this is just a, it's a human condition. Let's just start there. Okay. One gender might hit it more than others, but it's a human condition. Yes. Two, then is to remind yourself of past success. You know, mm-hmm. where I have learned or where I've grown, like, you know what, I, I can handle this, right? And then I think the third thing is, again, where, where you can both get internal confidence, but also, okay, where do I need a little bit of affirmation here? I mean, I, I, I don't know if this is technically sound, but we all need a little bit of help, right? So I think yeah. part of what a good advisor truth teller is also the, the supportive coach that believes in you. Yes. And everyone's well having a good chat. I, I did a project once where I was thinking about my own career. I did a, I was about 10 years into my um chief learning officer role, like, okay, what's next? And so I hired a coach and I said, all right, we're going to go through some career exercises and values and where I want to go. And he assigned me to get a advisory board together mm-hmm. of people I respect that know me over the years, that as I'm putting together my career plan, I could bounce off of. And one of the people I reached out to was an old manager I hadn't worked with for 10 years, John. And, you know, I just remember one call, I said, you know, I'm working on this exercise for the coach and I don't know what to think. And he stopped me cold. He said, Kevin, don't you remember we talked about this 10 years ago? Like, oh, yeah, thanks. And it was just very encouraging and supportive. So uh, to me, the formula for the imposter syndrome thing is one, everybody gets it. It's a human condition. It's, it's somehow there's a part of the brain that just kicks in Two, reminding yourself of where you've succeeded in the past, want to learn. And then three, having some support structure around you. Yeah, I really love that. I think you and I have had 
like this window into that a lot of people don't see. And so some people don't even realize like there are like literal jobs that like we get to build the careers of these really great leaders. And that's what you and I have both done in lots of different ways in our careers. And in those rooms, as HR professionals or learning and development and talent professionals, we see all of the best and brightest in these in these rooms. And I don't know about you, but when they are told, hey, you're going to this, you know, leadership program or, hey, you're getting a coach or, hey, they're like, oh, uh, okay. Is everything okay? And it like the imposter syndrome just kind of hits them already. And it's like, okay, am I, is something wrong? You're like, no, you're getting invested in because you're amazing. Right. So you're, the organization is, you know, helping you even more because you're such a great um, talent in the organization. And so, and even in those rooms, they're even more imposter syndrome because they're like, okay, well, everybody else is supposed to be really great here. How do I compare to them? And so it's really interesting to see even the best and brightest, especially the best and brightest feel that way all the time. So I, I um, totally, totally agree with that one. And that um, idea of the support Sometimes the support that, you know, build it, like you said, it's, it's the, the people that have encouraged you across your career, or it's even, it's the hiring of a coach, right? Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. you can, you can bring some of that in. There's people that do this for a living that have done it for years, have been in some of these roles, all that kind of thing. And sometimes it's the best investment you can make, whether that's sponsored by your company, which many companies are doing. Or just personally, there's a lot of leaders that, you know, are new in role, especially in transition that like, they're like, Hey, I need some help here. And I need that sounding board and having a coach is a great way to do that too. So I, I love your, your three, um, ways of overcoming imposter syndrome. I, I think they're very right on. I, I think back to almost, let's go back to the beginning of the podcast, your opening question. Um, that notion about how do we reach out and build relationships and connect um, I think coaching, internal, external mentoring, all of that. Uh, I'm a big fan also of peer peer groups. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I've seen our, our leaders do is, um, you know, they've got their gang. They've got the five or six people that they have breakfast once a month. They share life. Uh, they mm-hmm. connect with each other. They give each other feedback, right? So, yeah. Uh, but I think one of the ways you can break isolation, and by the way, it may not be five people from the same company. Right. But I, I always I always say, well, one of the things I, I do teach a class in networking and I have people do an audit. I said, there's two kinds of networks. Uh, one is your operating network. I have to get things done. Who's in my operating network? What's the quality relationship? What's the diversity of the relationships? Um, you know, where do I build it? The other one is the learning network. And most of my students are stumped on that one. Like, I don't know. But yeah, you need a learning network because it's not just, you know, what you know, it's what you can learn. Um, and just to kind of connect back to this learning zone confidence idea and imposter syndrome, uh, I'm a big fan of psychological safety. We, we do teach that, and I think leaders need to build that, and we need to surround ourselves. But psychological safety and comfort are not the same thing. And I think back to the why sometimes we get a little scared when we're getting the big job, the big promotion, or uh, even asking about it, is we're a little out of our comfort zone. And let's give Brene Brown credit about let's be confident, you know, be comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that's being a leader and growing as well. Uh, as, as one of the executive coaches, I know Stephen Miles, uh, I think I might get the quote right, is, you know, if you're uncomfortable, you're learning. Yeah. If you're comfortable, you're mediocre. <laughs> and so I, I wouldn't confuse psychological safety and comfort. 
don't know if you've got a thought on that one, but I'd say, you know, I think being uncomfortable is part of the part of the game. Yeah, I think um, I think you can be learning in lots of different ways. But if we don't build psychological safety as leaders, then people aren't going to be in a position to learn and do that stretch. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. You're not going to get best ideas. You're not going to get um, lots of innovation. You're yeah. not going to get that stretch like you mentioned. Absolutely. By the way, that could be a fun feed, a team feedback question. If you're leading a team, talk about psychological safety and say, hey, you know, obviously I've got a big role in setting it for this team. What am I doing well right now that I should continue doing to build psychological safety? And, you know, what could I do differently? I love the questions. That's my yeah. favorite is when we give listeners some really great questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your thought leadership today, Kevin. The stories were really wonderful to hear from your experience. And I just want to understand how should we connect with you and what's the best way to do that? I've got a little website. It's it's all together, thecoachableleader.com. Uh, and I've got free resources there. Uh, I've got blogs. Um, again, back, I did one on the the six ways to find a truth teller. I just did one on um, how to sort out uncertain feedback, which is like, okay, you're not sure. Like, so thecoachableleader.com. Uh, and then there you've got, you know, if you want the book, it's also an audio book, uh, Coachability Leadership Superpower. Those are the two resources I'd offer. But, uh, Wonderful. This was fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank I, you so I, much. I feel confident and stretched. Yeah, well, good. Yeah, thank you so much for this, um, for this conversation. And we're going to put all of those links in our show notes so listeners can find it there. I just want to thank you so much for connecting today. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.